Hey there, Marcus here. It is my joy and privilege to serve as pastor here at Awaken Church in Juneau, Alaska. I pray that in the next few moments, the, the word of God proclaimed is a blessing to you and is nourishing to your soul. But we believe here at Awaken that one of the ordinary means of God's grace in our life is the gathering of the people of God. We believe that it's in the gathering that, that we're known and that we know one another. That it's in the gathering that, that we are shaped and fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you this Sunday to come and join us. Come and worship with us. But for now, I pray that you're encouraged by this sermon. God bless. All right, would you grab your copy of God's Word and turn back with me? I have good news this morning. To Mark chapter 10. We are back in the gospel according to Mark. We started in the beginning of January uh, uh, after Advent season uh, in, in our study in the gospel according to Mark. We started in, in verse 1 of chapter 10, which is Jesus responding to the Pharisees, questioning him about divorce. And that launched us on like a month-long uh, mini-series on the God's purposes behind and his design behind marriage and, and, um, and how that relates to divorce. And so we are back now this morning, praise be to God, to Mark chapter 10. We're going to pick it up this morning in verse 13. This is the word of God. Let's read it together. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask again now for your help to... Um, to understand rightly your word, I, I pray that we would um, see what is recorded here in Holy Scripture clearly, and that it would be to our profit, to our gain this morning, that we would have a better understanding of how we respond to the gospel with childlikeness, and that uh, we would be encouraged this morning. Um, by this aspect of the nature of your kingdom, we ask in your name. Amen. Childlike faith is not to be at all confused with childish faith. Dr. R.C. Sproul said that childlike faith calls the believer to remain forever in a state of awe, to remain forever in a state of trust in their heavenly Father, he says that while childish faith balks at learning the things of God in depth, it refuses the meat of the gospel while clinging to a diet of milk, in, in quote. Childlike faith is necessary for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, our Lord says to us. But childish faith is cause for strong rebuke. It is even perhaps evidence of a false faith. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, Paul is writing to the church at, at Corinth and he is uh, addressing their childish faith and their childish behavior. And he says to them, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, not in a good way, but in a negative sense. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready, for you are still in the flesh. You are still infants in the things of the Lord. You are childish in your approach to the things of God, not childlike in your faith. The childlike faith is dependent on God to save and to keep you, to provide for us as the children of God, everything that we need, both spiritual and physical. While childish faith makes a mockery of the grace of God. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is addressing the issue of false teachers and those who follow after false teachers who, who teach false doctrines, who then, as, uh, as even now, teach childish forms of Christianity, childish forms of the gospel, man-centered forms of Christianity. And he says to them, that when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, are worse off than before. It would be better if they had never known the way of righteousness than to know it and reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit and another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. That is some strong language to communicate the, the, the very nature of childish faith. Childlike faith longs to grow in stature to the fullness of the knowledge of Jesus Christ until we obtain maturity in the faith, not tossed around by every wind of doctrine while childish faith remains in the elementary things of the Lord. The childlike faith reveres God, respects God, honors God as God, while childish faith is in fact most likely, and in most cases, not even true faith at all. What we have in our passage of Scripture this morning is first our Lord commanding that the children be permitted to come to Him. And secondly, our Lord's teaching that if anyone is to come into the kingdom of God, in other words, to receive salvation through Jesus Christ, must come with that same childlike faith, that same childlike attitude of the heart. In fact, he puts it in the negative sense and says that if anyone does not come with this childlike heart, will not be permitted to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we are just reading through the gospel of Mark and, and uh, of Matthew and Luke, and we get to this portion of scripture and just kind of breeze past it because it's only three verses here sandwiched between a, a very strong teaching about divorce and what we'll look at next week together a, 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 another uh, very strong teaching uh, uh, about Jesus's interaction with the rich young ruler we, we could just kind of breeze past these three verses with a cursory reading it can seem as though these verses are, are really insignificant in the grand scope of the narrative of scripture. Almost perhaps as if the, the gospel writers are trying to kind of soften things up a little bit after they record Jesus's strong uh, words about divorce. As if perhaps the gospel writers might be trying to just show us a softer side to Jesus, a more compassionate side, a more tender side, that he's you know, he, he, Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world, that side of Jesus. But if we just take a, a few extra moments and we look a little bit deeper, we realize very quickly that there is so much more going on here. There's so much more being said, so much more being clearly, I believe, communicated by our Lord Jesus Christ and then given to us through Scripture. Firstly, I want you to see with me this morning that this is not your kind of light, sort of Jesus hanging out with the children and the birds are chirping in the air and it's sunny outside and there's a, a warm breeze blowing off of the sea and the trees are in full bloom and, and everything is happy and peaceful. Now that may very well be the moment that Jesus is having with these parents who are bringing these infants and toddlers to him, but what we actually have here is a very strong interaction. 
There is a strong interaction between the disciples and the parents. And there is an intense interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Notice the language that we have in these three verses. We see the word rebuke. We see the word indignant. And we see the words do not hinder. And above all of these things, we see at the end in verse 16, the very incarnate Son of God, God of God, the one who always was, who spoke all things into an existence and even now is upholding all of creation by the word of his power, takes these children in his arms and God blesses them. Christ blesses these children. This is an incredible situation that's taking place in these verses. So not only do you have this strong interaction between all of the parties involved, but you also have two very clear and very important teachings about the gospel. Firstly, that the kingdom belongs to children like these. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, belongs to children such as these. We'll look further into this, but that is to say that, that infants and toddlers, the word used here to describe what is translated as children, is not older ch- children who, who run around and climb trees and punch each other and, and get into all kinds of trouble and can reason and, and begin to make decisions, but, but children that are of an age that are utterly helpless, infants and toddlers. And I think that extends even to those who, though they may mature physically, do not mature mentally past this sort of childlike state. It is parents carrying their children and placing them in the arms of Jesus. And we see together this morning that Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God belongs to these, belongs to such as these. We'll look at this more in a bit, but what I'm saying this morning is that I believe Jesus is communicating this idea that if a child, an infant, or even an unborn child, or perhaps a toddler who tragically dies, whose days are numbered by the Lord extremely short, are granted access to the kingdom. They belong to the kingdom, and that is a unique and special aspect of God's grace. That these children, though they are born into sin, though they are depraved, they are not innocent at all, are incapable of operating and acting and reasoning. But God, to show forth his grace, grants access to the kingdom for children such as these. Literally, the kingdom of God belongs to this category of children of infants and toddlers. And secondly, again, we'll look more at that in a bit, but secondly, our Lord communicates that, look, any adult, any person that lives on and is given more days, his days or her days are numbered past that of infancy and grow into a place that that you're able to reason, able to act in your depravity, able to make decisions based on a spiritual things, if they are to receive the good news of the gospel and enter into the kingdom of heaven, they too must have the very same childlike nature, the childlike faith, childlike heart in receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's this idea that the kingdom of heaven is granted to those in whom God shows his grace apart from any effort or anything that the individual on the receiving end of his grace could possibly do. It is the opposite 
of the proud, the self-righteous, who are better suited as vessels for the wrath of God than they are vessels for the grace of God. So these statements of Jesus about children are extremely contradictory to the culture in which Jesus lived. They are the exact opposite of the legalistic religious system perpetuated by generations of of the teaching of the Pharisees. This is another situation where Jesus is again confronting in a different way the the wickedness of self-righteousness, of works-based salvation. I remember uh, when I was growing up all over the place, there were these paintings of Jesus where he was sitting beneath that tree. And it's a very large tree for the Middle East, but there he is under the tree and, and there's children climbing all over him. And as I said a moment ago, the birds are chirping and it seems very, very happy. And there is an aspect that, I, that we should see in the text this morning, certainly of the, the reality that God is, is compassionate, that he is gracious, that he is rich in love, that he is good, But above that, I think we have more of another situation here that would provoke, again, the words of the crowd. Who teaches like this? Who teaches like this man with such authority? Who who says things like this? For Jesus to say that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children, helpless Dependent children like these was the exact opposite of the legalistic system in which they had created, in which salvation came by works. It came by an individual deceiving themselves into thinking that they could obey the law of God and on top of that obey all of the additional uh, rules and commands that the Pharisees had placed upon the people. Scripture says, has heaped upon the people as an unbearable burden. It's another moment where Jesus totally counters that religious system and says, no, 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 no. You say that Children have no place in spiritual matters at all. That they have no place in this environment at all. But I say to you that the kingdom of heaven belongs to these children. Jesus wasn't just teaching something new. He was teaching something that was exactly the opposite of what they believed to be true. Jesus is showing again that citizens of the kingdom of heaven, those who have received grace, who understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, and who are his people, are utterly different and unique than the citizens of the world, the citizens of the kingdom of darkness, who operate and respond and live and think in an entirely different way from the way that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God operates. It's been common for a long time now, a common approach in the Western church to make Christianity as palatable to the world as it could possibly be. To essentially try and and to communicate to the world around us that it is, it's easy to be a Christian and to be a Christian is really to be no different The church has attempted for a long time in in many ways to communicate that we're all the same. We just have faith. We just believe in Jesus. But you and I, we eat at the same places. We do the same things. Our life looks the same. We're no different. So come on in. Uh, To try to create a scenario where Christianity is not utterly unique and strange and different from the world, but is able to be blended in with this world. 
I remember when I was growing up, when I was young in the faith and, and ignorant to the truths of Scripture, I, I used to attempt to share the gospel with my friends and co-workers, and, and I would say to them, almost verbatim, I would say, we're no different, you and me, or we're the same, I just believe in Jesus, you should believe in him too, but, you know, it's a, we're the same, people work at the same place, everything is the, the same. But if that were true of believers, then there would be really no benefit in believing in Christ at all, would there? It would be the equivalent of the faith of the demons who believe in Jesus and shudder at his presence, but of course remain in the kingdom of darkness. I say that to remind us that that form of Christianity is childish and not childlike. That watered-down version of the gospel where we are not counter to the world around us, but attempt to make efforts to blend with the world around us. I'm not talking about living peacefully uh, among our neighbors. That is a different issue. We're, We're talking about being a contrast in the way that we think and the way that we respond. And as we look at the ministry of Jesus, as we look at his life, we see just that. We, we see Jesus always operating in this way that says, no, 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 it's not like that. The kingdom of God is like this. Everything from the Sermon on the Mount, where we hear Jesus teaching over and over again, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, all the way to his death on the cross where the King of kings and the Lord of lords humbles himself, taking on the form of a servant even to the point of death, death on a cross for our sake, for the sake of his enemies who are hostile towards him that he might glorify his name in that backwards opposite manner? If I were in God's place, which is a foolish thing to ever even say, and I shouldn't have said it. It's not in my notes. I don't know why I said it, but now I said it. I'll continue the thought. I I would just destroy everybody. You're my enemies, right? If you're God, imagine God, you're looking down at a world filled with with sin and rebellion, and God operates in this opposite way. I'm going to glorify myself through extending grace through my death, death of of the Son. It's all backwards. It's all counter. It's all different. And so society of the day said children have no place. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Not only do they have a place, but the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. We have these three verses in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We see it in Matthew 19, 13 through 15. We see the same interaction in Luke 18, 15 through 17. We see it, of course, in our text this morning. All three of them followed by the contrast of the self-righteous, rich young ruler who obeyed all of the rules, he says, from birth. The opposite of the helpless child that can do nothing. And so when we see passages of Scripture and and all of the synoptic Gospels, it should draw our attention that actually this is not something that is insignificant and should be breezed over, but this is something very, very important that we should kind of lean into and see what is being said here. So let's paint the scene together. Let's imagine what's happening. Jesus is, again, surrounded by a crowd. Now, we have come to find out as we've gone through Mark together that that Jesus is al- almost always surrounded by a crowd. They are almost always pressing in on him. But what we have in our text this morning is a situation that probably happened pretty often. But we're, we're seeing here a, a situation where it's not just kind of a generic crowd that's just pressing, on, pressing towards him just to be near him. But sp- specifically, we have parents who are bringing their young, bringing their children in their arms, whoever is responsible for these kids, and placing them in the arms of Jesus. I I would imagine that this was not a very orderly thing. I would imagine that it wasn't like every day from 2 to 4 p.m. you can make a line 
and one by one come up and, you know, place your child in Jesus' arms and, you know, next, next, next. Not, not that kind of thing. But instead it was parents and guardians and caretakers jockeying for position that their children might be blessed by the rabbi. That they might be blessed by this man sent by God who teaches as no one had ever taught before, who is able, able of, of working miracles, of creating food out of thin air, seemingly thin air. It is, not seemingly, out of thin air. Well, you know what I'm saying. Sorry. Second service. <laughs> they want their children to be blessed by Jesus. But, well, before we move on, I, I, I want to draw us in just a different direction for just a second and look at these parents and consider them for just a moment. Now, we need to understand that these parents did not understand Jesus necessarily to be uh, the Messiah, the Savior. They, they may have had an idea of that, possibly some of them, but by and large, we know that the crowds came for what they wanted and then they left, they dispersed, but even if they had a sort of suspicion that he might be the Messiah, we know for certain that they did not understand fully what that meant, that they did not understand that he was in fact the Son of God. But there was something in them that caused them to want Jesus to bless their children because of their love for their children, certainly, but their concern for the soul of their children. One commentator points out this idea that it is the primary duty of parents to do everything that is possible to impart the truth of God to our children. That it is our primary concern to be concerned about the souls of our children, that, that more than their physical need, more than them growing up and, and marrying some nice guy or some nice lady, or more than them having a good job or a decent career or a nice place to live, more than anything else, we are concerned with their soul. We are concerned with the only thing that is eternal, that all these things are passing away and in Godly parents ought to be most concerned about the souls of their children. Now, I, I have been pastoring this church for about four years now. And one of the things that has perplexed me year after year after year is how godly parents, who I know love the Lord and, and know the word and, and care about raising their children in the ways of the Lord, somehow get this mixed up. And somehow, because of the influence of the, of the world in which we live, elevate, often not, not um, on purpose, but it's just the way it sort of happens, elevates academics, elevates group activities, sports, and all these other things above the spiritual uh, um, development of their children. I, I, every single year, it confuses me when people literally say to me, we will see you after ski season or after soccer is over. It, it perplexes me that parents who long to raise their children in the way of the Lord make it when the priorities are listed lowest or lower on the list than academics, career, job, worldly happiness. Now again, I, I know that most Christian parents don't set out intentionally to do that. But the world is so opposed to the things of God. And it is designed in a way that is totally opposite. that parents ought to, I, I think it's time for parents to recapture this concern. 
that we ought to recapture a concern for the souls of our children. That parents ought to very seriously consider not outsourcing the education of their children to the world who educates them in the very opposite of the things of God. To perhaps consider again the priorities of our life and if we are prioritizing raising our children as David prayed in, in the way that they should go in our standing up and sitting down and as we walk along the way teaching our children the things of the Lord. I know that's, this is a bit of a, a tangent but that is what in their own way these parents are, are trying to do. It, it was very common for a father to bless his children and it was very common for parents to take their children to the synagogue that the elders would lay their hands on them and bless them and, and the idea was that through that blessing, that laying on of hands, that God would somehow intervene in the souls of those children. They didn't understand, of course, uh, salvation as we understand it, but they did have an understanding of salvation and that God needed to intervene in one's life. And so that's what these parents are there to do hoping that Jesus would bless their children. So you can imagine the environment is rather chaotic, isn't it? All these parents desperately trying to have their children blessed by Jesus for the welfare of their souls. And they are pressing in on him. And it's really not a surprise that the disciples yet one again, once again do something dumb. And despite waiting for instruction from the Lord, take it upon themselves to correct this situation. It says that when the disciples saw this happening, verse 13, they were bringing their children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Rebuked them. They didn't say, hey, excuse me, Jesus is very busy, he's very tired, it's been a long day, would you mind just coming back tomorrow? They didn't say, you know, this is really not what this time is for. Let me just escort you away. They rebuked them. They said, what are you doing bringing these children to Jesus? Get out of here. Go away. The scriptures tell us that when Jesus saw this happening, that he was indignant. Indignant. Now, I've used that word a few times, but I confess I didn't know exactly what indignant meant except for upset but indignance is to feel and show anger and annoyance specifically in witnessing people being treated wrongly that's what it means to be indignant so we are indignant when we see human beings treated in a cruel and inhumane way jesus saw these parents indignant or saw these parents trying to do something right and the disciples rebuking them and Jesus sees that behavior as wrong, as abusive, as it were, towards these parents bringing their children to Jesus. And so the disciples' rebuke of the parents become the reason for their rebuke from Jesus. And Jesus says to them, let the children come to me. This is a command from the Lord. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Do not hinder these little ones. For to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. We have our first truth, first principle, first reality of the gospel being communicated here this morning in these very few small verses that God extend, extends a special kind of his of grace not a different grace but a unique way in which these children receive that grace that those who are too young or mentally incapable to understand their own depravity depraved though they are And those who 
as I said, whose days are cut short, die and are instantly in the presence of God because they belong, because they belong to Christ. They are citizens of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. There's a special place in God's care for those who are in infancy, those who are Un- incapable, though responsible, incapable of making these spiritual choices, of hearing and responding to the gospel by faith. And that's what we see in this passage this morning, and that's what we see consistent through Scripture. Not because of their perceived innocence. They are certainly not innocent. They might look innocent, but I assure you they are not. They are born into sin and into iniquity. They are born with, all of us are born with a sin nature. But they are incapable of acting upon that depravity and incapable of recognizing certainly their need. They are incapable of responding to grace. It seems to be clear that that's what Jesus is teaching here. Here's why. Let me help us in a, maybe a briefer way than I did last, last time. Help us to understand that. Let, at the very heart of the gospel is God saving those who understand their total inability to be their own savior. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It is at the very heart of the gospel that God, through Christ, freely extends grace to whom he extends grace, mercy to whom he extends mercy. That to receive the gospel and respond to it has nothing to do with anything you have ever done or anything that you will ever do. It is the free gift of God so that no one may boast. Totally a work of God. He freely gives it for the glory of his name. And he does not share that glory with anybody. This is the very heart of the gospel. Not that he loved us and felt sorry for us, so he sent a savior to try to fix a problem. No, he allowed the problem to be created in order that he would ransom a people for the glory of his name. This is at the heart of it. And children fit so perfectly into that category, don't they? Because they are utterly helpless in every way. They are a living example of the total dependency and total trust and, and total humility of those to whom belong the kingdom of God. It shows the compassion of God, the love of God, the care of God, but more than all of that, it shows the very nature of the idea of the free gift of grace, bestowed and not earned, given and not deserved. And in that, God is glorified. It's also worth noting, I think, and and helpful uh, to see Jesus blessed these children. Uh, Dr. MacArthur very helpfully puts that God does not bless um, those that are cursed. He does not bless those who are under the curse of sin. Uh, put it this way, God does not speak out of both sides of his mouth at the same time. He doesn't say to people, I bless you who are cursed and damned to hell. I bestow my blessing upon you who are under my wrath. It it sounds ridiculous to even say, right? God never blesses those throughout Scripture. He does not bless those in this sense that are 
under the curse, but rather those who belong to him, those who are his people. In the Old Testament, we see that to receive God's blessing means to be called by God's name, that those two ideas are, are one and the same. It's not the same as when we say, bless you when somebody sneezes, or as a, as a farewell, we say, hey, bless you, see you later. This is a different type of blessing. To be blessed is to be called, to be blessed by God is to be called by God's name. And here we have Jesus, again, God of God, the Son of God incarnate, taking children in his arms and blessing them. The other gospel writers expand on that and says that he blessed them, he was praying for them. Let's look at this, one example of this idea of the blessing of God being uh, tied to being called by God's name. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron, his sons, and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of God. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up your countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name on the people of Israel and I will bless them. In other words, when Aaron and his sons spoke this blessing over the people of God, through that blessing, God placed his name upon his people. In other words, saying, you are mine, you are my possession, you belong to me, and so in that manner they are blessed. And we see many, many other examples. It is consistent with the nature of God, the character of God. And I believe is very clearly and simply what Jesus is saying here. If we just take it as it is literally being said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. If we, if we read it more literally, these infants and toddlers would just be placed into a category. If we read it more literally, we would just simply say the kingdom of heaven belongs to these children or to children as a broad category. Not only do the king, does the kingdom of heaven belong to these children, but if any person whose days are numbered past that point of infancy and into a place of being able to reason, they too are unable to enter the kingdom of heaven unless they come with that very same childlike nature. And so Jesus says that not only this children, these children, but anyone who approaches the kingdom must approach like a child, must receive grace like one of these children who are a perfect example of the attitude in which is required for admittance. Now, let me be clear. We are not saying that we must make ourselves childlike for God to give us his grace. If we did that, we are back into a works-based system of salvation. If we woke up tomorrow morning and said, today I am going to be childlike so that I might receive the grace of God. Today I am going to just let God know how dependent I am upon him, how much I trust him, and, and how good I am at that. And I'm going to, tomorrow just tell God that, that I'm dependent upon him and that I have faith that he'll save me and, and tomorrow I, I'm just going to be as humble as a child well the moment you recognize your own humility you cease to be humble don't you we don't make ourselves childlike but rather for those who receive the gospel, the heart becomes childlike. Let me put it this way. You, you let's just make it personal. You and I, at some point in our lives, if you have believed in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, confessed that he is Lord, 
believe that God raised him from the dead, at, at some point in your life, whether it was in childhood, whether it was uh, in, in your teenage years or in adulthood, at some point in your life, you went from being a self-reliant individual who did not believe you needed to a savior, who was very uh, uh, mature, so you thought, in your self-sufficiency, and all of a sudden you heard for the first time, or for the thousandth time, but finally actually heard the gospel. And in the moment of you hearing the gospel, your heart that was hard towards the things of God all of a sudden said, I need a savior. All of a sudden, your heart went from independent to dependent. From not needing a savior to being desperate for a savior. That is a childlike heart. So as God is is drawing us to himself and we hear the good news, the beautiful news of the gospel and it finally hits us and we begin to respond, our hearts are changed. And we know this, God takes out the hardened heart, gives us the softened heart, right? The heart of flesh transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We were, you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walk, walked, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive, right? There's this contrasting, well, so it's true for this childlike behavior, this childlike heart. Maybe we could just put it a different way and say, look, if, if you say you received the gospel, but you are childish, or you are still as independent as you ever were, you better wonder if you've actually received the, good news, the grace of God at all. Because what you will find in genuine faith is a childlike attitude. Childlike faith is totally dependent. It is totally trusting. And it is with true humility Humility that we are really incapable of ever exercising perfectly. But it's totally dependent in the sense that when we hear the gospel and respond, we recognize that we are not our own saviors. That we cannot create our own pathway. That we are not the masters of our own destiny. That we don't create our own fate. That we aren't in control of our little kingdoms. Don't we recognize that now more than we ever have in our lifetime? A childlike heart towards God is saying, I'm totally dependent on you for my salvation and every spiritual and physical need thereafter. Total dependency, like a child. You know, I, I think as parents, we don't recognize that when our, our children are, they, they are examples of this dependency, this type of trust, I don't think our children realize how incapable we f- feel as parents of being the fathers or the mothers that they think we are, Right? They, they have this total trust and total dependency that we will provide for their every need, that we will not lead them astray, that we will lead them in the right path, that we will provide for their every need. And we feel as parents utterly capable to do so, don't we? Honestly? No? Okay, just me. All right. I am utterly capable, incapable. So you all teach me your ways. But we approach God who is our heavenly father, who is perfect in all his ways, who loves the way that even the best of, uh, better than, uh, than the best of earthly fathers ever could, who does everything for the good of those who are called by his name, who gives every good and perfect gift who comes down from the father, that comes down from the father of lights, We are to approach God who is our Heavenly Father with that same childlikeness, that same trust, that same humility. Two incredible, incredible realities packed in these three tiny 
verses. The kingdom belongs to children such as these. And those who receive the gospel must receive it with the same childlike faith. That is really good news, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Every part of it. We thank you for this text recorded for our good. I ask, Lord, that we would understand uh, as a church and individually better um, how to live this truth ourselves and to model it for our children. And we thank you, Lord, that that we have not received grace based on our merit, but it is freely given to us. We thank you that for those of us who have believed that you have made us aware of our helplessness and our utter need for a Savior, and that in hearing the good news, we were able to respond with repentance and faith. And I ask, Lord, this morning for anyone in this room who may or who may hear this later on, that you would do that same work in them, that you would show them your, their need of a Savior. Show them that outside of faith in you, there is only judgment. And that you would draw them into your grace for your glory. Lord, we ask that we would more consistently approach you with the same trust and humility and dependency as children do. But we ask, Lord, that you would protect us from being childish. We don't want to take things lightly. We, would, we don't want to be drawn away into foolishness. We want to be mature. We want to grow in stature. But I ask that we would not lose our childlike approach to you. Lord, I thank you that you're doing this work in us. I, I thank you that the, the reason why we're all here this morning is because we've recognized together as a church that, that this is what we're longing for. This is what we're pushing each other towards. And so I ask that you would help us, as we sang earlier, help us to work out the gospel, work out our salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is you at work within us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. May we be encouraged by the fact that you are joyfully bringing these things out, that you bringing these things to be, that you love to make much of yourself through saving sinners like us. So we pray that the gospel would ring loudly in our ears and from our mouths that it would go out into uh, the world around us. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, before we're dismissed, would you, uh, would you stand with me this morning? Let's, let's sing one more time together in response to what we've heard and then we'll be dismissed.